Hello, I'm Nadia Singh and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the toll the COVID-19 pandemic has on the mental health of healthcare professionals and what can be done to reverse this while increasing their resiliency. To examine this are Dr. Paul Volberding of the University of California, San Francisco, and Dr. Faye Hulbaki, a clinical health psychologist with the University of Chicago. Thank you both so much for being here. Dr. Hulbaki, I'd like to start with you. Research shows that 50% of physicians face burnout or emotional fatigue caused by work-related stress even prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, clinicians at every level are fighting a deadly virus without basic medical supplies like PPE or access to effective treatments. Where does that leave their mental state? Now more than ever during this very challenging time, prioritizing physician well-being um, is paramount. Physicians now during this time are faced with surmounting complexities, um, including disruptions in the provision of direct patient care, complicated decision-making, of course, associated with uh, clinical care resources, and difficult communication re- uh, with patients and families um, regarding end of end of life care. And of course, our patients and families always remain hopeful. Our world of medical care has changed um, and completely transformed as we know it. Those choices to protect patient, family, peers, and self can contribute to physician distress. As a physician who may be currently experiencing symptoms related to burnout, that physician is now at an increased risk of of developing compassion fatigue due to that exposure to the secondary trauma associated uh, with um, COVID care um, and COVID uh, uh, trauma or complexities. Others may experience an emotional fatigue resulting from intense emotions and reactions, which manifests as fear and sadness and anger and grief. This may appear later. Um, of course, physicians might be on the go, automatic pilot as, as they're providing care, but it might be later at night where these flood of uh, emotions can, um, can, can occur. Additional fears are, are associated with becoming ill themselves further contributing to distress. And for others, the um, emotions will be delayed and won't be until we reach um, some form of recovery during the immediate crisis that um, that after the immediate crisis that that physicians will be experiencing this distress. So additional fear is that um, is becoming ill themselves. There's a, a a duty on behalf of the, the institution that that physician is part of to take immediate action to really support their well-being, to affirm their role and their values, and to provide critical COVID information, training, and um, supportive resources that bolster resilience now, as we are, are still somewhat in the midst of the crisis, as we're entering recovery in some phases in the, in the country, and in the future, especially if the new wave arises for the very long term. And those are points that are so often overlooked. Dr. Lubaki, I'd like to thank you for raising them. Dr. Volberding, moving on to you now, based on your experience on the front lines in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, what emotions and issues are healthcare workers dealing with as they navigate this pandemic? AIDS was uh, different in the sense that it took us a long time to understand what was really going on. And with, you know, with COVID-19, we knew pretty much immediately uh, a lot about the virus and quite a bit about uh, about the risk of it. Uh, with AIDS, uh, we, we, knew, we really knew nothing. We saw young people coming in, dying. Uh, every patient that we had died uh, that, that had developed symptomatic disease. 
for a while uh, until the virus was discovered and for a number of years, about four years actually, until we had testing, we didn't really know what our own personal risk might be. Now, so there was a, a phase when doctors taking and nurses taking care of AIDS patients in the earliest epidemic um, had, a, had a good deal of personal fear, uh, and that manifested itself in a, in a variety of ways. Um, as uh, as we got more experience, we realized that in fact it didn't look as though healthcare workers were at especially high uh, individual risk. Um, so that took some of the individual fear uh, out of the uh, of the situation. Obviously, not the situation that we see with the current pandemic, but but still the stresses were were really just uh, amazing. Uh, and again. Um, many of us uh, that got involved in the early epidemic were, were young ourselves. I was only 31 when I saw my first patient, same age as many of our patients. Um, and, and really, I think that added to the, uh, to the pressure that we were feeling to watch people our own age dying of this without our being able to do uh, really anything about it. So in terms of what that meant for us, I think, uh, I think burnout was a, was a real issue. I, very few of us um, chose to leave the field. Uh, it was very compelling. The, the need was obvious. Um, uh, the scientific excitement was very real. Um, and so we stayed in it. But over time, uh, watching the, the, the number of deaths and the horrors of the disease contributed to a, a fairly high level of burnout in many of the, of the early AIDS doctors manifest itself by unexpected periods of grief, uh, distancing from patients to some degree, uh, problems with, uh, with life uh, at home. Uh, I'm sure that a number of people had substance uh, use issues that were exaggerated because of what they were seeing uh, at work. And it really took uh, a fairly concerted effort to uh, begin to deal with that uh, in our program. Uh, we had professional counselors come in uh, and talk to us, give us some techniques about managing the stress. Um, but it was also important um, to realize that with the COVID-19, you know, we're facing stresses uh, at home as well because of the uh, shelter-in-place rules, many family issues, uh, and and it's important also to realize that we're not over this yet. Uh, you know, it's, it's right now things are, are slowing down a little bit in many places in the country, uh, but the virus is here. Uh, the virus will be here. And I think it's going to be uh, really an ongoing stress for uh, for professionals at all levels, as far as we can see. Thank you for that answer, Dr. Volberting. Very thorough. I'd like to follow up with what advice do you have for these frontline healthcare workers who are trying to manage this ongoing stress while trying to help and save their patients. You know, I'm not working in this epidemic in the in the exact front lines the way I did with the AIDS epidemic, um, but I, I certainly have many friends who, who are deep uh, in the middle of it. I have had, as we all, I think, uh, have friends who have gotten COVID-19, who have gotten really sick or who have died. Uh, we know that it's a huge issue for healthcare workers and other, other, uh, other frontline providers. Managing the stress by acknowledging it, by talking it uh, out, uh, looking for ways maybe to take periods of time uh, off from the front lines, 
uh, you know, if, if, if a provider uh, has to quarantine from his or her family because of the daily experience of taking care of patients, um, obviously that adds a, a whole uh, extra layer of grief. And so I think looking for ways to maybe take some cycle times uh, off so that, you know, that even after a period, you can get back to your family for a while and reestablish those connections. I think, uh, I think acknowledging that burnout is a, is a real issue. Again, seeking counseling when, uh, when it's available and being kind to each other, taking time um, uh, as you do that, taking time to care for yourself. I think those are all strategies that, uh, you know, I think we've learned in medicine, not just in, in the AIDS epidemic, but in, in many parts of medicine where uh, healthcare workers are under stress. Um, I think those can apply directly to what we're seeing now with the pandemic. And being kind to yourself is something that is often overlooked. Dr. Volberding, thank you for raising that. Dr. Lubaki, back to you. What resources and programs are needed to support healthcare providers on the front lines right now? Much of the public health funding was highlighted in 2008 during during the recession. And I think there have been shortages when it comes to um, the workforce and public health and, and public health funding. Um, so truly encouraging um, associations such as the NIH to to um, create grant mechanisms and RFAs so that uh, folks and institutions can can create projects and to, to study well-being um, during the COVID epidemic for healthcare professionals and even retrospectively um, to identify where were the stressors and, and what can we do. Uh, the CDC, American Psychological Association, American Psychiatric Association, um, other medical societies um, do have coping with mental health uh, resources that are available for all clinicians. Um, of course, the, uh, the National Suicide Hotline is very in, important, um, National Mental Mental Health uh, Network. Um, all of these resources are, are National Alliance for Mental Mental Illness, NAMI. Um, these have online resources that physicians can actually go to um, and 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 seek help and be able to externalize a lot of their their feelings that um, they are going through. But truly. A, a, the institution um, has to, whether it's a small hospital, a practice, really has to think about these interventions and, and in three phases, a prevention phase, a, a phase in, in that real time where the crisis is happening um, to focus uh, resources to that. And then after that immediate crisis, um, even, even though COVID in itself is not ending, but um, to, to truly think about such such resources as grief or peer-to-peer support um, uh, resources and that. So it will take many individuals, many experts to, to truly design these types of, of resources, these types of well-being resources. I don't think we can rely on other societies as much or other funding mechanisms. Many of us have to start at the institutional level and then from that point advocate on to to truly um, recognize the need that, that the well-being, the safety, the lives of our healthcare professionals is, is critical and vital and we have to, it's a responsibility we all have to take. You raise some excellent points Dr. Lubaki and give great examples of the resources out there for frontline healthcare professionals. What more can government agencies do to fill in the gaps when it comes to resources? Dr. Volberding, would you like to weigh in? I think it's really important to look for those resources and that's important for programs to do that, uh, not rely on the healthcare professional uh, to individually search these out. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you want to re- reduce the barrier to getting uh, to getting help. 
Uh, and I think that's a, an important function of the hospital or the medical center uh, or the training program uh, to make sure those are those are easily available. And even in the in the team setting, you know, uh, within the teams, having a, a physician champion or a team champion just checking in with the with the group and maybe also doing some type of relaxation exercise, deep breathing, um, visualization, PPE, you know, it could be very hot. It's almost like a tropical environment. So really focusing and, and um, on visualization for cooling and um, uh, self-soothing is, is vitally important for the physician. But again, the physician is, as Dr. Wolverine said, um, it has some responsibility to self-care, but they can't do it alone. It's really difficult. Um, to seek wellness resources when you're in that heightened state of arousal. Um, and so there's quite a bit of, of ownership, of quite a bit of responsibility and, and, and duty of care for these institutions to, to do it more so now than ever, um, because fears are within the realm that this will impact our workforce in the future. We will not have young trainees, young students wanting to come in to become physicians because it just won't be worth it if their lives are at risk. Thank you both for delving into that topic. With the death toll now at more than 100,000, healthcare staff are playing a critical role in supporting patients due to restrictions on family interactions. So what kind of emotional trauma are those on the front lines facing, Dr. Fulberding? Very serious stress, obviously. And I want to uh, pick up on something that Dr. Lockheed just uh, just mentioned, that she mentioned the uh, training programs. And you know, as we've had with the AIDS epidemic, a lot of the people in the response are are young. Many are uh, are the medicine residents and the infectious disease fellows and others uh, that are still in their in their in the, their training, and the stresses on on them. You know, they've chosen to to go into medicine. Uh, they've chosen to work in a city that just happens to be perhaps one of the hot spots of the of the pandemic. Um, their families are scared, um, they're scared, um, and their training uh, may well be interrupted by uh, this experience. Um, you know, they, in many cases, came to training to get a broad perspective on internal medicine, for example, or infectious disease, and here they're just immersed in this one uh, in this one horrible uh, pandemic. So I think uh, recognizing the, the anxieties and, uh, and, and grief that comes uh, with that uh, kind of interruption is a problem. And then as well, uh, because again, many of these people, and it's not just the, uh, the physicians, it's the nurses and all the other people that are involved, uh, very well uh, might have childcare issues at home. Uh, you know, they're, they have young kids in many cases. The kids can't go to school. Um, daycares are shut down. Uh, and I think that that's uh, affecting probably, as is almost always the case, uh, young women uh, more than the men. Um, and so looking for ways in which uh, we can we can relieve those disparities uh, in, in, in carrying the burden of this epidemic would be another really important uh, message to get across. Uh, again, it comes down to uh, anticipating uh, the stresses um, uh, putting together the resources, as we've been talking about, that might be of, of value, and really actively um, uh, looking for ways to identify people that are that are suffering uh, undue stress and, and helping find ways 
uh, to get them out of their front lines, at least uh, temporarily, so that they, they can recover uh, themselves and that their families can recover as well. Um, and, and then finally, um, recognizing that many of these people might very well have uh, elderly family members uh, who themselves are at risk uh, for this or who may be, who may be ill. Um, and just all of the ways in which this pandemic um, is making life uh, hugely stressful for the, for the people involved in the, in the care. So um, as I said earlier, being kind to each other, being kind to yourself. Um, and then I just uh, add in, uh, finally, uh, looking for ways to, uh, to uh, have physical um, uh, activities that take your mind off these things and, and keep your body healthy because uh, I think the temptation would be to, to let all that go because of what's going on. Uh, I, think, uh, I think the response can be really uh, good on, on multiple levels. Thank you, Dr. Volberding. This next question is for the entire panel. I'd like to talk about the other fears and anxiety that these same professionals have to deal with when it comes to just surviving this pandemic. Many have self-isolated from family and friends. How does this social disruption and isolation impact them? And what can be done to mitigate the impact on not only them, but on their family members and friends? What we're going to see, unfortunately, is, is uh, an epidemic of loneliness. And um, of course, the social isolation can, can bring loneliness. And if loneliness is untreated, that could lead to, to depression. Um, what we need to do is to make sure that we're, even though we're not, we can't be socially connected, we can be virtually socially connected. Reaching out, whether it's through Skype or um, through Zoom or simply picking up the telephone to make sure that that healthcare professional is in touch with one of their, their family members, their friends, even the peer, the peer support system. We never uh, recognize the fact that peer support is, is a wonderful uh, therapeutic technique that, that folks um, can use. Um, also trying to, to connect in um, gratitude therapy, truly being mindful and, and thoughtful um, can help to reduce the stress helps to improve the well-being and helps to boost happiness. Even in, in the time of COVID, we know, or other epidemics, we know that if healthcare professionals or individuals utilize these, these well-being resources, really devote time to self-care and remaining socially connected. We know social well-being is an important, critical part of quality of life to tell our patients, make sure you maintain your social connections because this can help you through treatment. We have to tell that to ourselves as well. It's a vital vital part of our quality of life, vital part of our vitality and our, our being able to actually bolster some, some resilience if we have a good support system. So maintaining connection is, is vitally important. And, and that can be difficult because we can't shake hands, we can't hug our, our loved ones, but at least being able to visually see one another and talk to one another and keep ourselves connected in that way helps to help to bring a, a sense of, of happiness and, and peace. And this is very vital. I've, I've been really lucky so far with the sheltering in place. I've got a house with enough space to walk around. Um, and, and I uh, live with my wife. Um, and I think the stress is if, if one is truly single, um, I would have to think might be, might be much worse. I, I personally couldn't imagine having been by myself for the last three months. So it's it's been really useful having uh, having somebody to share this uh, with. But I think, you know, fortunately, the technology that we have allows us to have some other ways of reaching out. 
Uh, our family has been having twice a week uh, Zoom calls with our kids uh, and their partners. You know, it's artificial, but it actually is, is quite effective, I think, to maintain the connection, uh, as we were just talking about. Uh, and, uh, you know, depending on where you live and the situations, it's very different, I'm sure. But I've got great neighbors. But we see each other at a distance on the street and stay in touch uh, that way as well. So uh, I think these are these are not small strategies. These are really probably uh, some of the most important strategies to, to stay in uh, to stay in connection with other people. Um, I, I, I do worry about the forced uh, separation. Uh, because of the quarantine that is, uh, I think, being imposed in many cases on healthcare professionals. And I would hope that, you know, maybe with a better sense of the testing for this virus and the, and the antibodies, we might be able to identify people where uh, it, it's actually safe enough for them to stay in touch with their uh, with their family, even while they are providing frontline care. Uh, I think we'll probably learn more about uh, that as we as we get more experience. But, but I think that maintaining the connections is really central. At this time, I'd like to open the floor for any last words. I, I think one of the things that we've learned in this, in this pandemic has been, uh, and we, we, we've kind of known it before, but I think we've really relearned it uh, here, is that this is absolutely not all about physicians. This is about the entire uh, uh, team and, you know, the, and the heartwarming stories of the people who, you know, move patients from one part of the hospital to another, the people who clean up, the people who deliver food, looking at, at this as uh, a, a true team and, and respecting each other, I think could help uh, help us as well. Oh, I just wanted to echo exactly what Dr. Volverding Vol said, that it's about the team and the team isn't just that immediate care team, but it is um, um, there are so many of our staff again within the hospital. But I, I would like to just send a message out to, to the individual a clinician to please prioritize your self care. You are important. You are worth it. And another message to the institution, no matter what kind of practice you are, small practice, um, large practice, academic centers, please, please, despite the time, think of investing in resources devoted to clinician well-being. Uh, well-being uh, is going to be very, very critical, not just now, but for the long term. We have to address the mental health well-being and physical well-being of our clinicians so that we can maintain a healthy and happy healthcare workforce in the future. Thank you for this wonderful invitation. Thank you both for raising those points. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Hlubaki and Volberding for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.